last Sunday, Christian uh, pushed us off into a new journey. And that new journey is that we are going to study the topic we want to hear from God about what did Jesus do. It's a good thing to study and to think about what would Jesus do, but what we're going to think about is what did Jesus do. You can look through the scriptures and you could learn all kinds of things about Jesus, and that's what the disciples of Jesus, like we are, should do. We should think about his teaching, his moral instruction. We should examine his miracles and what they say about his kingdom, his interactions with all kinds of people. But what we're looking at, especially in these next weeks, even a couple of months, what did Jesus do for us? Specifically, what did Jesus do on the cross? And we're taking this much time because there's not one way that the New Testament speaks about what took place on the cross. There's not one theme or motif, not one way to talk about what took place on the cross, just in the same way that there's not just one way you can talk about a parent loving their child. They do it in a multiplicity of ways. And that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So each week we're going to look at different ways that the New Testament says that's what took place on the cross. And it was also like this, and it was this. And so each week we're going to be doing that. And the theme that I'm going to take up today is substitution. That Jesus became our substitute. He became your substitute when he was on the cross. He was your substitute. Now, uh, for some of you as you hear that, You might not have any idea. You think, I don't know what that means. Jesus is my substitute. I don't really know. Maybe I've heard that before, but I don't know. That's okay. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it together. We're going to look at a piece of scripture and try to see what does God say in the scriptures about Jesus as our substitute. And I know that some of you think, I've heard that before. I think I know what that is. And that's good, too. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to push that aside a little bit and to think together with us as we look at these pictures of the scriptures and to think, What does the Bible say about Jesus being our substitute? We're going to look at a passage that comes from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to give a little context before I read it about what's going on in this story. It's right at the end of Jesus' life. It couldn't be much closer to the end. It's the night before his crucifixion. And he sees the cross. He sees his impending death coming towards him. And it's beginning to weigh on him. We're going to see how heavy it's weighing on him in just a moment. And so what he does is he he pulls three of his closest friends into the garden to be with him. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt great sorrow, great sadness, and you wanted people around you who loved you? That's what Jesus wanted as well. So he brings his disciples with him, and it's a situation in which everything is beginning to turn against Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem, and the crowds are cheering for him. Now they're beginning to turn on him. Even his own apostles are beginning to turn on him. You're going to hear him refer to betrayers. But let's look now. This comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Let's read along together and hear how Jesus is our substitute. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that 
you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rests later on. See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. My dear God and friends, this is God's word to us. It is absolutely true, and it was given to us in love. Would you please pray with me? God, would you please use my words now? Would you please guide all of our thoughts and all of our hearts? Open us up to hear from you. Help us to know how much you love us. And help us to love you back. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a quote from a book called The Little Prince that's really important to me, and I want to share it with you right now. What is essential is invisible to the eye. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And to me, one of the things that means is that when I look at each one of you, you know when you meet somebody and you see what they look like and you get an impression of them, uh, maybe what they're wearing, if they're tall or they're short or how they speak, and People can begin to think that they have an idea of who you are, but what is essential about each one of you is invisible. Deep inside of you, who you are, it can't be seen by the human eye. And it's the same thing with situations or occurrences that we have in life. Let me give you an example of it. Imagine that you are at an airport. You're there to pick somebody up, and you're there at the gate, and you begin to see people come off the plane. Uh, Standing there alongside you is a middle-aged woman. And you see her looking anxiously as people get off the plane. She's looking for somebody. And, and by the way, I know that you can't stand at a gate while people come off anymore. I'm telling a story. Okay. Um, so middle-aged woman, she's looking and she's looking and she's seeing. And now she sees an elderly woman get off the plane and her eyes light up. And you see the elderly woman's eyes light up too. And all of a sudden they come towards each other and they embrace. Now you see the joy. And you see the embrace, but what's going on there? What is essential is invisible because is that a a mom and her elderly mother or a daughter and mother? Have they not seen each other for a year? Have they not seen each other for 30 years? Is that elderly woman there for a birthday party? Or is she there for a funeral? Or maybe they're not mother and daughter at all. Maybe maybe this woman is a music musician and, and that was her music teacher from a long time ago. We don't know. What is essential? is invisible to the eye. It's the same way in the story that we just looked at. Jesus is in that garden. And there is a sorrow, there is a trouble coming over him. We can see some things, but the essential things that happen in that story, the essential things that I want each one of you to know, you can't see with your eye. And when I say that there are essential things in that story, I mean it the first way that I was using it. There's something important and essential going on in that story that we can't see, but I mean it in a different way, too. I mean it's essential to your life. I mean that what took place in that garden 2,000 years ago is as important to you as anything that you possibly could imagine. And I know that there are some of you that believe that, that believe that what Jesus did a long time ago was for you and is essential to you. But I also know that there may be some of you who don't believe that or who have trouble believing that something that somebody did a long time ago 
would have an impact on your life right now, maybe the most important impact. And I know what that's like because I have not always been a Christian. I became a Christian as an adult. It makes sense to me that somebody would ask me, wait, even a great person a long time ago, what they did has everything to do with my life now. It does. That what Jesus did then is essential for you right now. I mean, essential. I can't, I can't emphasize it enough that what he did then has everything to do with your life as much as the people that are closest to you, the vocation that God has given you. Your very self, your being, rests upon what Jesus did. So I want to take a look at it now. Let's do a little close reading. Let's kind of dig into this. Let's look at the details in the passage and see if we can't gather some of what is invisible to the eye. We can take it in in a deeper way. Look at verse 36. It says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And this is one of those places where language just does not do justice to what's really going on. Sorrowful and troubled. You know, you can be sorrowful if your favorite team didn't win. You can be troubled because maybe you've missed a payment on a mortgage or something, but there's something much, much more significant going on here. There's an affliction coming over Jesus. There is a weight that is hanging out here. And in fact, the word troubled is the Greek word adameo, which can mean heavy which can mean being filled with a kind of despair or darkness. Maybe some of us know just the, the whisper of what that might feel like. And he's feeling it in a way. He goes on to describe it. He tells us how bad it is in verse, well, in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, think about that for just a second. Jesus is not going to say anything he doesn't really mean. His soul is sorrowful to death. And then it says, watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. And that word fell can mean somebody who prostrates themselves, gets down and falls down on their own volition. But it also can mean somebody who is so overcome emotionally or physically that they fall down. What is going on here? You know, you look at this, and it's, it's, it's jarring, because Jesus, the Son of God, who has sort of been presiding over his whole life, kind of not above the fray, but somebody who is full of faith and full of courage and full of wisdom, and now it looks like he's having a panic attack. He is stricken. And you think, well, what's going on here? Is he afraid to die? He knows that the cross is coming. Is he afraid to die? And it can't be that. There's no way it's that, because there's lots of people, Christian and otherwise, who have faced death with far more courage than this, far more serenity. In fact, you look at this passage and you look at the history of how it's been interpreted, lots of early church interpreters were sort of embarrassed by this passage. Some of them just sort of skate right over it. They look at Jesus, bereft, full of agony, full of despair and depression, and they sort of tried to explain it away. They tried to give alternate answers, say it probably doesn't mean what you think it means here, because they were sort of embarrassed to see Jesus in this kind of trouble, with this kind of sorrow weighing down on him. What is going on here? What is essential that we can't see? And the clue comes in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
let this cup pass from me. He's talking about a cup. And we know that this is the linchpin of this passage because he says it again. Look at verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What is he talking about? What is this cup? What is this cup which is causing him such affliction, which is making his soul weigh down his very veins, coursing with death? And to get to the answer of that, we've got to pull back from the garden. And we've got to look and see, what does the whole Bible say about a cup? What does the Bible say about a cup? Jesus is referring to a cup. What is it? The actual answer is the Bible basically has two ways to talk about the cup. As a matter of fact, you could even begin to say that the Bible has two cups. There are two cups in the Bible. The first cup in the Bible is the cup of blessing. The first cup in the Bible is the cup of joy. It's the cup that you raise when you're at a wedding. It is the cup that you have when you're with friends at a birthday party. It is the cup at the Christmas party. When everything is right, when you feel God's blessing and joy coming over you, do you know that cup? Tell me you know that cup. You know it? It's the cup of Psalm 116. Psalm 116, someone is so grateful for what God did for them. He says, I'm going to raise the cup of thanksgiving. I am going to toast you, God, and it's God's people around a table. It's the same cup of cup of Psalm 23. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, God sets a table. And it's a table that has all the provision you need in a cup that says it's overflowing. It's the same cup of one of my very favorite passages in Scripture, Isaiah 25. God throws a party on his mountain, and he invites everybody. He invites Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and poor people and rich people and conservative people and liberal people, and they're all invited to this party. And it says that there's a great feast, that there is fatty and rich meat. I like that. And it also says there are well-aged wine, which I also like. And it says, everybody is gathered around this table. That's the cup of blessing. And I want to say something real quick to my 12-step friends, my courageous friends who have made the decision not to drink or not to use. This cup of blessing that God is talking about is a cup which comes from and takes us to God's kingdom. For some of us, the choice has to be to not drink. That is a wise and courageous choice. But the cup that's being talked about here is a cup which is of the kingdom. In this broken world, sometimes alcohol is something which takes us into brokenness. It takes us into affliction in some way, not the cup of blessing. Not the cup at this party to which we are all invited, to which we will all be gathered around God's table. That is the cup of blessing. And that cup comes to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, it's his cup. He's the host of that table. He is the host and the, and, the, and, the, and the one who invites us to that feast. And he is the one that wants to give us that cup of blessing. It's his cup. And he shares it with us. That's the first way that the Bible talks about the cup. But that can't be what he's talking about there, can it? Not in the garden. He's just too, he's too afflicted. It can't be the cup of blessing. And there actually is another way that the Bible talks about a cup. There's a second cup in the Bible. The first is the cup of God's blessing and the cup of God's love. And the second cup that's in the Bible is the other side of that coin. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's anger. It's the cup 
that is talked about as God looks at our world and he sees each one of us and he sees the world as a whole and he sees us turning away from his love. And he sees us turning away from loving our neighbors, especially our neighbors in need. And his response to that is wrath and it's anger. And you can see this cup just as many places that you can see that cup of blessing in Isaiah 51, in Jeremiah 25. God looks at his people. It's not just for little in, like discreet sins. You did this, I'm going to swat you down. It's his wrath, his, his, his anger at the way his people are not loving and worshiping him and also not taking care of the people around them. And so his response is anger. And you can see this most clearly in Psalm 75. God says his anger is against us, is our failure to love our neighbor, and it has to be poured out on us. This is Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That is the cup that's being handed to Jesus in the garden, and that is the cup which is filling him with dread. And that is the cup with his love that he takes with both hands and he pulls it out of our hands, the cup that we should have drank. Our failure to love God, our failure to love the people around us, but he takes that cup from us and he drains it down to the dregs so that we don't have to drink it. He offers us his cup of blessing. Take my cup and I will take your cup from you. And he takes it so that he suffers that that death of God abandonment that we deserve. And he takes it into himself. And he takes it into himself as God. See, if he was just a human being, that would have totally annihilated him. It would have destroyed him. But he takes it into himself as God. And his heart is so full and powerful as God is that he takes that wrath into himself and he extinguishes its power. In the garden, beginning in the garden, and then all the way to the cross, Jesus is taking down that cup. In his death, he is putting sin and death to death. Do you hear that? In his death, your sin and your death is put to death. And a great exchange takes place. He becomes your substitute. You look at Jesus in this, in this garden, and you see what's going on. It has everything to do with you. Don't think that this is just some abstract doctrine. This is something that's far away. This is something that religious people think about. This is your life going on in the garden. You look in the garden, and he's taking this on, and he's doing it for you. He's taking it on. The judge gets judged in our place. I want you to know I know what just happened. I lost some of you. I started to talk about God's wrath, and I lost some of you. I can feel you tighten up just a little bit. When I was talking about God's blessing, I had all of you. I could feel it. I could feel it. Um, you got excited because you like you like blessing. And we know that joy of being around a table with one another, and we know that that's what we were made for. That's what you were made for. But then when I started to talk about God's wrath, you were like, oh, I didn't know this was one of those churches. <laughs> oh, shoot. I, I didn't know. I... I you listen to that and you think, that is kind of primitive, and that is what people talk about. I'm not sure how that has to do with my life. And also, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe in a God of God with angry. And again, I wasn't always a Christian, so I know what you're talking about. 
And it's also not lost on me that people sometimes talk about God's anger, God's wrath, in a way to manipulate other people. I know that sometimes people talk about God's anger as if sometimes God is really nice to you, keep being good, keep being good, you did that, now I'm very angry with you, and you've had it, and the thunderbolt comes down from the sky. And if you don't believe that, I hope you don't, because it's not biblical. It's not anywhere close to what the gospel of Jesus says. But what if God's anger, what if God's wrath, I know you guys know this, what if it's the other side of his love? What if those are two sides of the same coin? His love and his anger. You and I know that our love sometimes is bound up with anger. We want the very best for the people in our lives. We want the best for ourselves. And sometimes when things push against what is best, we get angry. When somebody hurts somebody around us. Let me read you a quote from a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a professor at Yale University. He teaches theology there, and he is somebody that said early in his career, God's wrath, I don't talk about that. You know why? Because it's barbaric, and it's antiquated, and it's not a good thing to talk about. That's what you should talk about. God's love, this is, but Miroslav Volf is from Croatia, and he was there during the worst of the fighting and the worst of the warfare. He saw it up close. And this is what he says. He says that event changed his life, and it changed his mind about God's anger and God's wrath. This is what he says. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's true. And then he says, but that is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 200,000 people were killed, and over 2 million people were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. Think about that for a minute. Think where you live. Think of the town where you live. Think of the neighborhood where you live, and, and then the, and the houses around you, and the little playgrounds, imagine them now all demolished because of somebody's anger against you, because somebody's foolishness against you, because of somebody's hatred and vitriol. He says, my people were shelled day after day. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I couldn't imagine God not being angry. Think of Rwanda, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath. I came to think that I'd have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of God's evil. God isn't wrathful, listen, God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And I don't have to appeal to an Ivy League academic to get you to believe that because you already believe it. If a child runs into the street, your love compels them and you're angry. No, 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 don't do it. You look right now at what's going on in Ukraine. You are angry about it. You're angry. The story's coming out of children being preyed upon, being brutalized, not having a place, not having a place to go home to. It makes you angry. People you know, or when you hear about somebody suffering under a racially motivated attack, it makes you angry. 
And do you know why it makes you angry? Because you were made in God's image. And because you have written on your heart God's law that says, I don't like that. And I will correct that. And I will make it right. Because he's a God of justice and a God of love. And his love is so powerful that he will oppose anything that is against his love and justice. Are there things in this world that are against his love and justice? So his love, his anger at those things wants to make them right. Are there things in your life which oppose God's love and justice? And so his love comes to make all of those things right. And that is what's going on in this passage. God's divine wrath isn't an arbitrary anger where sometimes he's happy with you and then I'm not happy with you anymore. Now I'm angry. It's his love coming down into this world to make all things right. And what we see in the garden, here's what I want you to see. Jesus is there as your substitute. That there's no way that we could bear all all of God's love and wrath to make us who we are called to be. Instead, Jesus comes alongside us as our elder brother and also as God himself. And he takes that cup, which is ours, and he drinks it down to the dregs. And he bears that death for us, and then he hands us that cup of blessing. Jesus, the judge, judged in our place so that we can be received by God with a life that is new, with a life that is whole, knowing his love is for us, and Jesus bears the brunt of that. And do you know what you need to do to receive that? Nothing. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. And most people don't have that. All you need is gratitude. You know, you read all sorts of things. Gratitude makes you live 4.7% longer, right? Is that what the, that's the statistic, isn't it? Just totally made that up. That's the only thing I just made up up here, but all the rest of it was true. But who are you going to be grateful to? You can be grateful to a God who bore what you could not bear and who takes you alongside himself and wants to bring you into a new life of gratitude, which is built on his love and which is built on his even wrath, which is making all things new, which is going to set things right. Now, just to finish up, I know that you might still have some questions in your mind. You should. This is a complex thing. But as you're thinking about this, you might think, okay, what? This still seems a little primitive little barbaric. Why does God have to punish? Why does God have to bring it in this way? Why can't God forgive the things that we do? And I don't even have to answer that because you already know the answer. You know that if somebody takes $50 from you, you want them to pay $50 back. You know there has to be a recompense of some way. You know that if somebody takes a million dollars from somebody, they should owe back a million dollars. What happens if somebody takes a life? How do you make that right? How do you make right the cruelty and the indifference and the injustice that's happened to you? How do you make that right? Who's going to make that right? Who is going to make right the cruelty and the indifference and injustice that you have inflicted on others? And the Lord Jesus Christ comes alongside and says, I'll bear that. I will take on the cost of that. I will be their substitute. 
Or you might say, well, this sounds like divine child abuse. God taking this innocent person and then hurting this person because of, no, 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 that's not what's going on. This is not a case of God punishing. This is a case of God. Jesus Christ, who is fully human and fully God, coming and standing alongside you. God bearing what you cannot bear. This is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all deciding for you that they'll bear those things for you. You might also be thinking, I'm not sure that this is really fair. Is this fair that somebody else stands in for me? What about accountability? Do you ever think about that? What about accountability for my sins? Well, there are going to be consequences for your sins, for your wrongs, for the little white lies that we tell, for the corners that we cut, for the people that we ignore. All those things, we're going to face the consequences of those in our lives. That's called wisdom, trying to navigate our lives, the consequences of the things that we do. But accountability? No. And that may or may not be fair. I don't have any idea. But is love fair? Is God's love for you fair? Is you being invited to a feast on God's mountain where there will be a feast that you will get to sit at and be with all of God's people, is that fair, being invited to God's party because he loves you and because he likes you? Love is not fair. But God has decided to do this. You think, I don't want Jesus to do that. Too bad he's already done it for you. I don't think this is fair that he did it. Take it up with him. I don't have any idea what to say to you. God has done that for you in Jesus. He's taken the cup that is yours. He's become your substitute. He has done what you needed to have done. Has anybody ever been down to Washington, D.C.? There's a bridge there. It's called the Arlen Williams Bridge. You ever driven across the Arlen Williams Bridge? Arlen Williams Bridge was named after a man named Arlen Williams, who 40 years ago this year was flying in a plane uh, over the Potomac, and it went down into the Potomac in 1982. And the crash was such that many of the people from the plane ended up in the water. It was January. The, the river was ice cold, literally. And a helicopter came to rescue some of the people that were uh, out of the plane. And they let a rope down, and the rope came first to Arlen Williams. And he took the rope, and he handed it to somebody that was next to him in the water. And they pulled that person up and into the helicopter to be saved. The helicopter's rope came down again. And it came to Arlen Williams again. This is all on YouTube. You can see it. And it came to him, and he handed it again. That happened five times. And then the fifth time, the rope came down, and he wasn't there anymore. He was under the water. He became their substitute. He bore for them a death so that they could have life. And then a life after that is just a life of gratitude. It's a new kind of life. It's a life which is built on not what you can do or what you can... You can't do anything when you're in a river that's ice cold. You can't do anything. And tonight you're going to go to bed. You're going to get along. You're going to get into bed and you're going to think, what was my life like today? Did I do good? Did I do well? And I hope that you are. I hope you're thinking about the ways that God can use you in this world. But when all is said and done, someone has become your substitute, you can lay down and sleep in peace. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has become your substitute and born what you could not bear. He took on your death and he gave you his life. So that your life can be one of gratitude. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.
Jesus, we give you thanks that you have done for us what we cannot do, that you still do for us what we cannot do, and that by your Spirit you are here coming alongside of us. Fill us with gratitude for what you've done for us. Help us to live as people who see your sacrifice, see you as our substitute, and then live lives of gratitude. I pray, Father, that you would help those people who are here, who have known this this teaching, who have studied your cross, who have walked with you for a long time. Be with them and help us to see afresh your love for us. And I pray, Father, that you'd be with those who maybe have never thought about this, or have thought about it and have turned away from it. I pray that you would give those people gratitude and faith, faith in Jesus, who is a good and faithful God, who would be willing to hand over his life and take on our death. Lord Jesus, help us to receive these things. Form our church in a cruciform shape, that we might be a church living out of that gratitude, willing to sacrifice and substitute ourselves for others, just as you have done for us. These things not in our own strength, but in the strength of our Savior Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.